Good morning, Miss Hill. The scripture today is from 2 Corinthians 11, verses 1 through 15. I hope you will put up with a little of my foolishness, but you are already doing that. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promise you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. But I do not think that I am in the least inferior to those super apostles. I may not be a trained speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way, and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows that I do, and I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things that they boast about. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising, then, if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. Hey, Missio. My name is Johnny Morrison. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, as you've already heard, we're so glad that you're with us. Wherever it is that you're watching, thanks for being with us. If you have been with us for the summer season, then you know that we are in a series walking through the book of 2 Corinthians. This is Paul's letter to a church in the Greek city of Corinth. And it's actually one of multiple letters. He sent one in 1 Corinthians, and we have some evidence to suggest that he sent some other ones. And he sent these letters to this church at Corinth to instruct them, to teach them, to invite them into the way of Jesus. And what we've seen mostly throughout this letter is that specifically, Paul is trying to help this young church understand their life and their world and one another and their practices and their habits through the lens of Jesus' work. That they might see all they are, all that they do, everything that they bring through the story of Jesus because it's radically transformative and it radically reinvents and reimagines the world around us if we're immersing ourselves in Jesus' story. And so Paul is trying to like invite them into it, into how disruptive this story really is, into how world-changing this story is really is. But that has met a ton of obstacles 
That's why there is more than one letter, because Paul is encountering many obstacles. He tries to invite this church to see their life through the story of the gospel. And in this moment, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we come to maybe like the culmination of Paul's frustration with the church. He says in verse 1 this, he says, I hope you will put up with a little foolishness. Yes, please, would you put up with me? And he uses this phrase foolishness like five times in this chapter. He's like, would you just put up with me for a little bit because I have some work to do. I have some business to deal with with you. And so would you put up with a little bit of foolishness? You can tell that Paul is frustrated, that he is upset. And he's been kind of doing that. He's been kind of like unpacking his frustration for 10 chapters. But in chapter 11, it comes to its climax and we also get this comment that reveals maybe the chief reason why Paul is frustrated. Like, what's underneath all of that frustration? And in verse 4, he says this. He says, For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus that we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit that you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. So you put up with it easily enough. Paul's frustration with the church at Corinth is fundamentally, at the very bottom of everything, that they really easily put up with a different Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel. He's trying to invite them into a new story of reality, and he's like, you so easily put up with other stories. You so easily put up with other pictures, other worldviews, other ideas of what might make this world new. You put up with other ideas of who's at work saving this world. You put up with other ideas that how you're empowered to do this work. All these things that Paul has been outlining throughout this letter. He's like, you so easily put up with a different vision of it, a different version of it, a different story of it. And he's like, and that's what's making me so frustrated is that you easily put up with it. And I think that phrase is so interesting, you easily put up with because he's not saying that you fully reject the story of Jesus. He's not saying that you fully reject me even, though that's where a lot of the conflict and tension in this passage comes from and throughout the letter. And he's not even saying that you fully reject the spirit or you fully reject the gospel. Instead, he says that you put up with other versions. And instead of it being a full rejection, it creates this image of maybe like a mixing of the two. That you have the story of Jesus that you inherited from me, and yet you also take the story of Corinth, the story of Rome, the story of the cities and worlds and cultures around you, and you easily put up with the two together. It's fine. And I think that challenges us to ask a really similar question that Paul is challenging the Corinthians with, which is, what do we easily put up with? What is the thing that we put up with easily enough the same way that Paul is frustrated with? What has merged its way into our story of Jesus? What's merged its way into our understanding of the gospel? What's merged its way into our thinking of the church or the spirit that we put up with easily enough and yet should probably be rejected, that should be evaluated, diagnosed, and named? What do we put up with easily enough? In the world of Corinthians, Paul does not specifically answer what the thing is. He doesn't tell us like what it is that the church does, what this false gospel, this other Jesus is. He never names any of that. But we do get to see where and how it plays out. 
which I think gives us a little bit of an indication of what the thing is that Paul is naming. And the primary place that it plays out is over conflicts of Paul's authority with these figures that he names super apostles, which is like a just dripping in sarcasm, super apostles. And there's these conflicts between Paul and these super apostles that Paul does not look like them. He doesn't act like them. He doesn't talk like them or work the same way that they do. He says this in verse 5. He says, I do not think I am in the least inferior to those super apostles. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel to you free of charge? See, what he's challenging is that Corinth has this image of what a teacher or an expert is supposed to look like in their day. And this is Greco-Rome. So think like famous historical figures like Cicero or Seneca or Plato, these images of people who are amazing speakers, brilliant orators, who have power and authority and glory and they're eloquent and they perform a certain way and embody a certain kind of thing. And Corinth wants Paul to be those things, to look like the experts and authority figures of the world around him to take on the image and performances of their imagination. Paul chooses not to. Or maybe he can't. But either way, he chooses to lower himself as opposed to elevate himself. He doesn't charge for his message, which for some reason the Corinthians think is like essential to being a true expert, that you would charge for what it is that you're doing. He doesn't use soaring language, and they think it should be essential to be respected. Instead, Paul lowers himself and exists in humility in the midst of this church. And for Paul, what we see in this moment is that's not just how a messenger of the gospel is supposed to work. That's actually how the gospel works. And so Paul is naming that if you reject me in my humility, then you are also rejecting the humility of Jesus' gospel. The two are linked together. That if you reject me and my humility and my obscurity and the way that I've condescended to you, then you don't understand Jesus who condescended to you. You don't understand the way this thing works, the way the gospel plays out, how the kingdom merges. You've put up with another story. And now it's reframing the way you see this story. It's compromised the Jesus story. You're insisting on the values of Corinth over the values of Jesus. You're insisting on the values of your culture over the values of Jesus, and now you're missing the values of Jesus. Where do we do this? What do we easily put up with in our own culture that feels like normative and right even, and yet does not actually square with the story of Jesus? I spent some time this week just thinking about this. Like, what are the places that we do this? And the one that I think about the most is the way that we in America celebrate violence. I think this is fascinating, that if you look at our movies, I'm not even talking about war, if you look at our movies, our, like, superheroes, the things that we love the most, which I love. Like, I'm a huge nerd. I love superhero movies. I love Star Wars. I love Lord of the Rings the most. And yet, at the center of all those stories is violence as the way in which problems are solved, as the way in which the heroes overcome. And it's fascinating to me that we are very protective when we talk about sex and sexuality. We want it to be fully rooted in the story of Jesus, which is right and good. But 
we rarely do that when it comes to consumption of violence. I think we have easily put up with something that maybe needs to be questioned. Another place that we do this is who we respect. This is the same issue that Paul is facing. We have certain images of what it means to be respected in our culture. Maybe you have so many degrees or so many letters behind your name. Maybe you look a certain way. Maybe you have so much money, so much kind of position. And all of a sudden, that's what it looks like to be respectable. That's what it looks like to be educated. That's what it looks like to be smart. And what happens is that then we reject all of the folks who do not fit that very specific image. And the problem is, is that image is normally me. It's a white dude. And everybody else gets rejected because they don't fit in the confines of that position. They can't be a CEO or a leader because they don't look like a leader or a CEO. They can't be smart because they don't dress like a smart person or look like a smart person or have the credentials of a smart person. Another one that's easy that we talk about more is money. The way that our culture celebrates the accumulation of more over and above generosity or over and above even simplicity and poverty. That one always seems right and moral and one seems immoral. Yet I wonder, are we putting up with something too easily? Individuality is the other one I thought of. That we should make decisions based upon how they impact me or my family above and beyond the community in which we live. That that's actually wise and smart and prudent and good stewardship of our families and our times. And yet, is that actually putting up with a different story? Far too easily. See, here's the trick about all of these different places that we've named. They are compelling because they look right. They look wise and they look moral and they look good. This is what Paul says in verse 13 and 14. He says, For these super apostles, they are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. They don't look like false apostles. They look like they're apostles of Christ. He says, No wonder, for the Satan masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising, then, that if servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. They seem right. They seem good. They seem... Prudent. They seem like good stewards, smart, moral. If you think back to uh, Matthew chapter 4, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Like sometimes we take that temptation and we make it like about evil things. Like Jesus is being tempted to do evil. And the truth is, is that he's being tempted to establish his kingdom the way that all kingdoms have been established. And that is tempting because it is easy to argue that if he would just do it the way kingdoms have always been established, and he could bring something good and right and just quicker and faster. That he could bring salvation now as opposed to through this arduous way of the cross and sacrifice. The temptation in the wilderness is fundamentally that the ends justify the means, and in a similar way we have this moment where the ends, the right, the good, justify how you get there. It seems like angels of light. It seems good, which is what makes it difficult to discern the difference. So how do we discern the difference? How do we know when it is an angel of light and an actual angel? How do we know when it's Jesus or a different Jesus? How do we know when the story that we believe is the story of the gospel versus something we put up with too easily? Well, Paul actually gives us some clues in this passage. First, he says, look to the humble. 
In verse 7, he says this, Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? And then he goes on to talk about how another church that was more poor actually provided for Paul's ministry so that the Corinthians could have access to the gospel. And then Paul talks about how he was dependent on none of the Corinthians because he was bivocational. He worked as a tent maker. And what he's saying is that Paul consistently chose humility. The very thing the Corinthians are rejecting is the very thing that Paul chooses because it's the way in which God works in the world. We don't have to look far to see that. When the prophet Isaiah talks about the future Messiah Jesus, this is how he describes him. He says this, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and what? We held him in low esteem. Isaiah's like, that's actually this low esteem, this low humility, this condescension, that's how God is intending to work in the Messiah. John 1, when the gospel writer tells the story of Jesus, he says the same thing. He says, the word became flesh, but the world did not recognize him. And even Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, says this, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things to shame the strong. The pattern in the story of Jesus is that God moves in humility, that he flexes in weakness. Not in what looks traditionally strong or what looks traditionally excellent or what looks traditionally respectable or glorious, but in what is humble and what consistently pursues humility. So Paul's like, if you want to discern the truth, if you want to know what is legit and what is real and what is good versus what is not, and what is humble, and what seeks humility, and what pursues humility, and what continues to embody a way of humility. What rejects vainglory for humility? And what chooses it consistently? What chooses humility consistently? And that leads to number two. Paul says this in verse 14. He says, what am I going to do? He says this, I'm going to keep doing what I've always been doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want the opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. So Paul says, look for humility and then look for consistency. Look for consistency or stability. Paul's actually worked through this idea quite a bit with the Corinthian church. The notion of stability or consistency. It's a notion for Paul that despite the pain, you would stay. That despite the hurt or the difficulty or the drama or the, the arduousness of the labor, that you would stay and be consistent, like the work of tending to a garden. That it does not produce glory overnight, that it is the slow work of cultivating something. It's not about jumping on the latest fad or trend or idea. It does not choose like quick glory, but is the work of slowly, intentionally curating and cultivating a way of life. And Paul says this is kind of actually the secret weapon to undermining false gospels. It cuts the ground out from underneath them. That the falsity is undermined by stability. That the falsity is revealed through stability. 
that the lie and the shallowness of these like false apostles, that it will just be revealed if Paul stays. If he loves well, if he absorbs the pain of the church, if he works the garden long term, then it reveals the falsity. So he says, if you want the truth, you look to humility and you look to stability. Or in another word, you could say, look to the person of Jesus. When Paul describes the person of Jesus in maybe his most famous like chunk of text in Philippians 2, he tells the church in Philippi, he's like, have this mind. What mind? Oh, the mind of Christ, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What looks the most like Jesus? He's like, that's actually where the truth is going to be. The thing that chooses humility, that condescends at every turn, that gives away power and glory and absorbs the hostility of the world around it until there is none left and is yet still standing. He's like, that's what is true. That's what is good. That's what is right. If you want truth, you look to the humility and stability of Jesus. Does it look like him? You see, what would happen if that was the way we discerned truth? We discerned the stories of the world around us, if we evaluated culture that way. What would happen if we became that kind of discerning people? I think first we would actually be a discerning people. And I don't think that's a thing that we American Christians get to name that we've been good at, discerning. But I think if we use Jesus as the primary lens through which we evaluated the stories, hopes, imaginations, and truths around us, I think we would begin to become a discerning people, not swayed by trend or culture or new waves. But I also think that we would be a people who get to experience mystery and surprise because God shows up in unexpected places. If you were paying attention, which there is figures in Scripture who were paying attention to what God was doing in the margins and the unexpected places, then the birth of Jesus, the incarnation of God in condescension, was a brilliant surprise. Paul's conversion was a brilliant surprise that was unexpected. And so not only would we be a discerning people, we'd be a, period, a people who got to experience the surprise and mystery of God's unexpected arrival. And I think that would make us a deep people who tend well, who tend long, and who curate healthy gardens. And if we became a deep people who curated healthy gardens, not perfectly, that's not what this is asking for, that we would just stay consistent even in our imperfections and our failings. But I think if we would curate healthy gardens through stability and tending well, then we would also become safe people. Safe for one another, safe for dealing with our sins, safe for transformation, and actually safe for the world around us to find shelter and relief. Just like we see the world around Jesus find safety in him. So if we became a discerning people who saw the world through the story of Jesus, the person of Jesus, yeah, I think we become discerning people who experience the mystery of God's arrival. 
I think would be a deep people who curate spaces of safety and shelter. To become the church. So, Missio, as we close up, I think this means we have to ask ourselves just a couple questions. And first, what do you easily put up with? What do you put up with too easily? What cultural values are mixed into your faith or have overtaken the gospel or have just kind of like wedged their way in there? And as soon as you begin to evaluate them, you start to find some dissonance. What do you too easily put up with? Two, this is a, a bit of a cheesy question, but I just couldn't think of another way to say it, which is, who or what is your angel of light? Paul says these people appear as angels of light, but they're actually masquerading that way. So what is the thing that is your angel of light? Who do you respect and give authority to that you probably shouldn't? Or what do you think is respectable that you're actually pursuing that isn't respectable in the story of Jesus? What have you been convinced has authority and value and should be respected, but isn't? Whether it's someone else or something else or that you're applying to yourself that you need to deconstruct and get rid of. And then where can you move towards humility and stability? How can you begin to reevaluate these these things that you just named? Your angels of light, what you easily put up with, How do you reevaluate them through this different grid, the story of Jesus, the person of Jesus? And how can you take these habits into your own life to both apply it to the world around you and also to begin to apply it to yourself? How do I pursue humility and stability? One of the ways that we do this is every single week we gather at the table. Because at the table, we meet the humility of Jesus. It's just bread. It's just a meal. That's it. And yet, in this simple meal, these ordinary elements, well, we are surprised that this is where God arrives. And in the mystery of God's arrival, we are reminded that he is stable. That no matter what we've done or what we bring to this space, there is always room for us. God's table. It's a space of safety in the midst of a thing that feels often unsafe. And so if nothing else, Missio, the way that we can practice it this week is to come to the table. And so wherever you are, if you're in your home or you're with your family or you're just watching on your phone, would you grab some kind of element? The bread and the cup, these ordinary, simple, humble sacraments. Would you take them, be reminded of the mystery of God's arrival, and meet the stability of grace? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are always here. That you are consistent, that you are with us, that you are for us, that your grace does not run out. That as we run into you over and over and over again, you stay here. God, as we meet your stability, would we become that kind of people who choose humility and stability, presence, and the long work of curating a safe space like you did for us. God, so meet us today and form us into that kind of people. In your name we pray. Amen.
And so I invite you to take the elements.